It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, and it is a pleasure to welcome to the show Kevin Eshkogigan, and he is the president and CEO of Indigenous Tourism Ontario. And it is a pleasure to have uh, Kevin on the line from his vehicle. Now, he tells me he's uh, parked by the lake somewhere, uh, enjoying some relaxing moments. He sounds great on his end of the line, and it's a pleasure to have him here. So, Kevin, welcome to the show. Ah, miigwech, David. Yeah, I'm parked on uh, the North Channel on Lake Huron up on Manitoulin Island. And uh, as usual, I've got a beautiful site up here and a beautiful view. So it's a pleasure to be here today. And I'm glad you uh, invited us to talk a little bit more about uh, about this initiative. Manitoulin Island, I didn't know you were there. I, I It's one of my favorite places. I love Manitoulin Island. I, I go there as often as I can. It's one of the places I use to rejuvenate. Uh, I think it's an incredibly spiritual place. Uh, I, I just, I, I love it. I just love uh, Manitoulin Island. <laughs> yeah. so. uh, I'm glad you like Manitoulin, David. So, so do we. And this is where our head office is. Uh, on in on the Onekamnakoning First Nation here with Indigenous Tourism Ontario. So it's a great home base. Uh, we've also got an office down in Southern Ontario, down in Toronto, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's you're absolutely bang on. This is a very very spiritual place, and it's got a lot of meaning to the Indigenous people, and especially the Anishinaabek, which which I am. Mm-hmm. You are the president and CEO, as I mentioned, of Indigenous Tourism Ontario, and I'm glad to hear that it's based on a First Nation in, in on Manitoulin Island. First thing that comes to mind is I remember a number of years ago I took my family up there because we did some glamping in some of the teepees that are up there. Is that the same community that we were on? It's probably not. And if you remember the name of the business, I'd be able to tell you. Yeah. Um, but it was it was likely Spirit Island Adventures, mm. and ironically enough, that's uh, that's actually my business. And uh, we've. <laughs> Tempor- we've temporarily closed it down due to COVID, right. but um, it was being hosted with the Great Spirit Circle Trail, who's also uh, felt the effects of the, the global pandemic. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that's actually over in the Chiging First Nation, where I'm a member. So I've got family all across Manitoulin Island. So I'm, I just say Manitoulin Island or mm-hmm. Nadona Singh is, is home for me. Right. Okay. Nicely said. And as you said that, that is exactly what I remember it being uh, part of the Spirit, uh, Spirit Lodge. Is that what you said? Spirit Island Adventures. Spirit, Spirit Island Adventures. Yes, I remember it being that. And uh, we had a great time there. And Chiging First Nation, of course, I remember that it being there. Uh, one of six First Nations up on Manitoulin Island, correct? Yeah, there's uh, well, there, there's a couple on the west end, Jiwashing and Shishigwani. Mm-hmm. There's uh, Chiging First Nation, the Ondakumnakoning First Nation. There's uh, Shigwenda First Nation and the Wakomakung Unceded Indian Reserve. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, wonderful places to visit if people get a chance to go up there and uh, and spend some time on, on the island, the largest uh, freshwater island uh, in the world, in fact, right? That's correct, yeah. Well, it's great that you're here, Kevin, and uh, I know that you're here to talk about Indigenous Tourism Ontario and some of the things that are going on. You've got some great stuff. Now, you're uh, heading up Indigenous Tourism Ontario, but you're, you're associated with um, Tourism Ontario? Uh, well, Destination Ontario, we're, we've got a lot of affiliates and allies. Uh, we're very much uh, believers in collaboration. Yep. We definitely do not try to, to duplicate uh, uh, the work of others. So 
uh, we work with different groups like the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario. Okay. We work with groups like the Ontario Tourism Education Corporation. Yep. Uh, we work with, well, there's at least a dozen partners right across the province, all trying to work together in a collaborative manner to support, uh, first of all, Indigenous people, but then also Indigenous tourism operators more specifically. Mm. Now, uh, this organization, um, Indigenous Tourism Ontario, when did you start that up and why? Yeah, so the original concept of ITO was, it was actually ATO, so Aboriginal Tourism Ontario, back in about 2008. Mm -hmm. We used to actually have two organizations in Ontario. We had one for the north and one for the south. Uh, The One was the Northern Ontario Native Tourism Association. One was the Aboriginal Tourism Association of Southern Ontario. And around 2008, both of them were, were winding down and uh, we were called on in my previous role with the Great Spirit Circle Trail to uh, take a more uh, formal and leading role within the province. Um, at the time, we, we had our hands full. Uh, we were working at the Great Spirit Circle Trail where we had two companies we were operating, but we also were planning to build a hotel on Manitoulin Island. So we had a lot on the go. But we did commit um, at the direction of our board and as Anishinaabek people, as First Nations people, our nature is to share and to provide for those who, you know, need something that we may have plenty of. And we had Mm. plenty of knowledge of the tourism industry and the industry needed some support. So what we did is we committed to uh, developing a strategy because there wasn't a voice for Indigenous tourism in Ontario as both the the previous organizations were fading away. And uh, roughly 10 years later, actually 2016, we got incorporated as Aboriginal Tourism Ontario, uh, later rebranded, and uh, eventually set up an office in Ondekamna Conning in 20, uh, 2018, and then an, another office down in Southern Ontario in 2019 or 2020, and then um, we've been off to the races ever since. Yeah, and you know, when you mentioned the uh, hotel, which uh, is built, if it's the same hotel I remember staying at uh, as when I was up there on a, a retreat with uh, Grand River Employment and Training a number of years ago, uh, is that the same hotel we're talking about? You're probably thinking of the Manitoulin Hotel and Conference Center. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that would have been the hotel that we worked on with at the Great Spirit Circle Trail. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely a, a case study for how to do Indigenous tourism, especially building hotels with multiple partners. Mm-hmm. There's actually seven partners involved in that hotel, six of which are First Nations, and another one is a corporation owned by First Nations, mm. owned by eight First Nations. So it, it's uh, it's still there. I can actually see it from where I'm sitting today, and mm. uh, it's doing as well as it can during the, the current mm. situation. Right. Now, you know, the idea of, um, uh, of Indigenous tourism uh, has expanded and grown immensely. There's been so many, uh, so much interest, of course, prior to COVID, where things were really, I guess, uh, taking a, a, a much more uh, grandiose approach to uh, to travel or things, and, and hopefully things will get uh, opened up in the next uh, little while. And well, I guess we'll have to see how, how things go with COVID and uh, all the variants that happen. But there's, there was always a need and always a cry for the authentic experience and, and uh, in the in- Indigenous tourism area, wasn't there? Absolutely. And over my almost 20 years in the industry, um, I've seen a real shift where 15, 17 years ago, there was still a lot of appropriation happening. Mm. Um, but consumers have become so sophisticated right. and they know, honestly, some of them know more about 
um, the Anishinaabek or even my people <laughs> than some of our own people do because they research it and they're so fascinated. Right. And um, yeah, now nowadays when they come to an area, um, they demand an authentic experience and there has to be indigenous people involved. And if they're, they're very knowledgeable, um, they're going to demand that there be an Anishinaabek person delivering an indigenous experience right. in Anishinaabek territory, mm. uh, close to an Anishinaabek first nation. Yeah. So that's how specific it can get. And as you know, there's many nations across con- the country oh, yeah. and authenticity is, you know, it's, it's relevant to, whichever region you're in, each nation has to decide what's authentic to them. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it, it's a huge part of the demand of consumers these days. And you know, now that you've said that, it brings up the other side of that because because the, the tourists want an authentic experience and because they are becoming more in, in educated. But what it does is, is create a need for that education to be on both sides because Indigenous people then need to be aware. And I'm sure it creates a part of the re- reason why you are maybe looking at this uh, collaborative uh, uh, element and probably doing a lot of education and getting more savvy on the side of tourism to bring that authentic experience to people. And uh, and I, I guess what I'm, I'm going with is this uh, three, cl- three Fires Collaborative Quest program that you've got uh, going and you're looking for people to get involved and to get trained up and to become educated. Yeah, absolutely. And that's education on one element David Mm. it's education on the modern facets of the tourism industry right so we we, um, one of the things we I've been quoted as saying many times is we're the original tour guides of these lands Mm. and there's no one better to be involved in the tourism industry than First Nations people Mm -hmm. we've been doing tourism for over 500 years right and some would even say longer right so uh, with that being said though like the modern tourism industry is something a little bit different than what we're used to. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to school, as they say, on, on the experts who are running these industries, tourism in this case, and we're, we're learning and we're, we're adapting our own philosophies and principles to what we're doing. And uh, when we look at the Three Fires Collaborative Quest, it's actually a, a solution to a problem that um, I've been trying to tackle for for quite some time for about 15 years and when we break down the um uh, how to build any industry you, you need certain things and in the indigenous tourism industry uh we broke it down into four what we call the four directions mm-hmm. uh, the first one is cultural authenticity as directed by the communities themselves mm-hmm. so there needs to be cultural integrity guidelines um we need to make sure we're doing business the way we want to do business right okay there, of course, needs to be marketing and branding as there would be in any business model. There needs to be, in our case, their um, product development has to happen. Um, that's a big part of why we built the Manitoulin Hotel is we wanted to raise the ceiling for uh, the inventory of rooms on Manitoulin so mm-hmm. more consumers could come mm-hmm. in a controlled fashion. And then last but not least, you need indigenous people filling these jobs to make it authentic right so when we built the manitoulin hotel and conference center that was one of the goals was to create opportunities for indigenous people so we can improve the socioeconomic conditions of indigenous people through tourism Mm -hmm. and uh, my time at the great spirit circle trail there was actually nothing more rewarding than to see young indigenous people come and work with us and on their downtime do nothing but study who they were. And they did that by, you know, yeah, looking at some books, going over to the Ojibwe Cultural Foundation, going out and seeing elders in the communities. And it created such a pride within them that they were then sharing what they 
they've learned, not just with international visitors and consumers from all over Ontario, but they were sharing their new knowledge of themselves with their families. And there were, it was, you know, a, a form of healing for them as well, but it was also a way to participate actively in the tourism industry. And most importantly, they were able to tell their story on their terms. Yeah. What a wonderful story that is, because uh, as, as you just said that, I thought, wow, yeah, that's another side of this where it's uh, self-educating and allows people to learn about themselves, about their communities, about their history, and allows, as you said, allows them to, to share that story in their own terms and in their own way, and and very much from a personal perspective, uh, giving that out to other people to educate them on uh, the real aspects of, of history, which is which is uh, another uh, great element. But I liked what you also said when you started this, and that is educate people on on the modern side of tourism, on what to expect and what people uh, can expect when they're coming into your community, so that they get that authentic experience. Yeah, for sure. And like like I was saying, like the collaborative quest, like we want to understand how the industry works, mm-hmm. and we want you know our people to understand how it works, and we want to make sure that they're set up for success. So when we talk about the Three Fires Collaborative Quest, we we work with two really strong partners, with TIO, the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario, mm-hmm. and OTEC, who you know, uh, they do training. That's their thing, mm. right? Tayo is the voice for Indigenous, uh, sorry, Tayo is the voice for tourism, not just Indigenous tourism. Okay. So they, um, you know, they're a very strong, strong, strong player. Yep. And when we look at this model, we know we can't do it alone as ITO. Right. And, uh, you know, when we look at the Three Fires Collaborative Quest, and I, I have to share this with you, David, is it's based on a, on a, a governance model that's, you know, um, well known within the Anishinaabek community, and you know, although I represent, uh, you know, we're, I work for a, an organization that represents Indigenous tourism across the province, and we're recognized as the voice for Indigenous tourism in Ontario uh, by Indigenous leadership. You know, we uh, we are not just Anishinaabek. We you know we help you know amplify the voice of the Cree, the Haudenosaunee, mm-hmm. um, the Métis, wh- whoever needs our help in mm. the tourism industry. Mm-hmm. But the Three Fires Confederacy, it's an Anishinaabek governance model that, you know, I don't want to do a disservice to the Three Fires Confederacy, but the Three Fires Collaborative Quest yep. is inspired by the Three Fires Confederacy, and, and I'll give you some some loose. Uh, very, very basic introductions to the Three Fires Confederacy of the Anishinaabek people. Yep. Um, there was actually three nations that were working in a collaborative manner to serve the people and serve the greater good. And they were the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and the Potawatomi. So when we work with uh, the Ontario Tourism Education Corporation, or OTEC, or TIO, the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario, and we each had roles. So when we look at the Three Fires Confederacy, the Ojibwe were the providers. Okay. So in our case, when we reflected on this and we offered up our tobacco to, you know, seek some guidance on what we should name this in a respectful manner and, and where we can see these alliances with one, the three is the easy one. That's the common thing, right? But when we look a little bit closer, the Ojibwe as the providers really reminded us of OTEC and the role that they were going to pl- provide where they were going to provide hmm. uh, the knowledge, right? Hmm. The, the role they were going to play was provide the knowledge to hmm. all of us, which is the, you know, the, the ins and outs of getting into the tourism industry and giving people the fundamental skills so hmm. they have success in the industry. Hmm. The Odawa in the Three Fires Confederacy were the warriors. And in our case, we reflect on this and one could make an argument for, for ITO as being the warriors, but we felt it was more fitting for Tayo 
to be the identified in, in this kind of role. And it's not the equivalent of the Odawa or the Ojibwe or the Potawatomi, but right. it, we, we were striving to be like those nations. Yes. And Tayo, like the Odawa or the warriors, you know, they fight for us all collectively in the tourism industry day in and day out. Right. You know, they're advocating for everyone all of the time at the government levels, you know, addressing different things within, you know, policy to help all of us advance a little bit further ahead. And last but not least, the Potawatomi, their role was to be the fire keepers. And, and, and we looked at uh, ITO as being the fire keepers because when we look at each of these individual fires of OTAC, Tayo, and ITO, and, and the industry itself, uh, there's a fire burning in, in all of us. And it's our job to help keep those fires stoked. It's our job to keep those, you know, people motivated and, and come out of this global pandemic. Mm. And the Three Fires uh, uh, Collaborative Quest is exactly that. We all have a role to play. And if we stick to our roles, the biggest benefactors are going to be, first and foremost, the Indigenous people. But then also the industry as a whole and our society collectively around Ontario, because there's going to be economic benefits to everybody in Ontario. When Indigenous people succeed, the rest of the province is succeeding. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's something that we're striving for here. And uh, I'll, I'll get into some more on that, but on, on the Three Fires Confederacy and its goals here in a, in a minute, David, mm. but I'm sure you've probably got a couple of questions. Well, before you go any further, I just want to mention that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa and you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. My guest here on the show is Kevin Eshkagigan. He is the President and CEO of the Indigenous Tourism Ontario. We're speaking to him about uh, a, uh, a collaborative Quest program. We're going to get into that in a little bit and uh, it's a pleasure to have Kevin on the show to talk about uh, Indigenous Tourism uh, in Ontario and this Three Fires Collaborative that he has just been talking about because uh, it, it, it certainly is something that is uh, it's definitely going to be uh, of great importance as the tourism starts to open up again and international travel start coming back to this part of the world. Kevin, the other thing I think about when tourism opens up and the education that can take place, especially as we move forward on a global scale, we are dealing, of course, with a situation not only with COVID, but with the climate. And I'm sure that there is going to be an opportunity for Indigenous people to share ideas around being caretakers of the planet, around how to move forward. As you know, Indigenous people lived light on the land for generations and thousands of years without leaving a footprint, without uh, taking advantage of the planet and working with the planet. And it seems to me that's the direction that we have to go in very quickly if we're going to sustain ourselves on this planet in the future. Yeah, I, I'm not going to disagree with you, David. I'll just say this on this front is we um, we empower Indigenous people to share their story on their terms. And on the environmental front, um, you know, we don't preach to people. Yep. Some may argue that we should, right? <laughs> right. But uh, at the end of the day, we share our philosophies. Yes. And uh, we're storytellers and we pass on messaging. Um, I'll share this little story with you. One of the very first uh, what we call familiarization tours uh I ever did. It was actually the very first one. We actually had a, a large inter international uh, inbound receptive operator come down, um, but he also brought his, his mother who only spoke Russian. Mm. And, um, you know, he was translating. I was sharing philosophies of our people uh, around a fire one evening and on one in one of the communities on Dekam Nakoning. 
And um, all of a sudden, this lady who couldn't understand uh, what I was saying, but could see the emotion within me Mm. and uh, was getting some of the words to her in Russian, she broke down and started crying. Mm. And uh, she started crying. And I said, being a, a rookie, basically, I asked, I said, oh, my goodness, did I, well, I didn't offend your mother. Like, I, you know, that's mm-hmm. not my intent. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, no, no, she's absolutely, uh, she's very, very happy. And I, I was a little bit confused for a second. And they mm-hmm. said, she's very happy to realize that there's still people in the world that think the way you and your people think about the earth and your connection to the earth. And you only take what you need. Mm. Uh, You don't take everything you want. You don't take access. You take what you need and you respect the earth and you respect others. Mm. And she's very moved by that. And she's so, so happy that (laughs) there's people in the world like this. Wow. And yeah, it was, it was quite an experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the, I've had a a pretty adventurous uh, career in tourism so far and it's not over yet, mind you, but uh, one of the things I can think of when, when that's the case is, you know, it's not just indigenous people here in Canada, there's indigenous people right around the world and we all have similar philosophies that were caretakers of the land, keepers of the land. And, uh, you know, I remember speaking in places like uh, Berlin and uh, on a panel of uh, indigenous people from right around the world. And we all spoke in our own languages. And uh, it was amazing to me that all of our stories had the common theme of being respectful to Mother Earth. Mm. We had different terms and different terminology, but Mm -hmm. the the moral of the stories were all the same. Mm -hmm. And it's what you talked about is, yeah, let's Mm -hmm. look at where we're at now and let's do a little bit better job Mm -hmm. of taking care of that. Right. Miigwech for sharing that. Uh, Kevin, I want to come back to the collaborative because I know that you you have something that is happening right now, and that is you have a call out for people to start uh, participating uh, in the industry and start, ed- start getting educated. And there's going to be an opportunity for people to uh, partner with employers um, and, and uh, look to become employed within the industry. Yeah, absolutely. So with the Three Fires Collaborative Quest, it serves it solves multiple problems. As I was mentioning earlier, mm-hmm. it's solving a problem that I struggled with for about 15 years. And, um, you know, it's that human resource element. And like I said, we're, we we're the original tour guides of these lands. Um, and we also know it, some will say it's anecdotal. Some will say it's a real thing, but uh, I'm a firm believer. We're in times of labor shortages. Mm-hmm. We were before the global pandemic mm-hmm. and now it's being amplified. Right. And, I've been saying it for over a decade. We're not the solution to the labor shortages, but we're a part of the solution right. because at the end of the day, first nations people are not going anywhere. We, we don't have anywhere to go. These are our <laughs> homelands and there's no one who knows them better. Right. So right. let's get involved. Let's right. be a part of the solution. And, you know, when we look at this particular program, we're, we're not only training indigenous people to get involved in the tourism industry, not just the indigenous tourism industry, mm. the industry as a whole. Mm. And uh, we're also helping, you know, those individuals improve their social, individual personal socioeconomic conditions, but we're also helping indigenous tourism operators get matched up with these, uh, these new newly trained employees. We're also helping non-indigenous businesses get connected with, you know, these newly trained employees Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, this employer, 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 employee relationship is being fostered and managed and coordinated. And when we talk about those three roles, of, you know, that we talked about with OTAC, Tayo, and ITO, and the Three Fires Confederacy comparisons and parallels, like, you know, OTEC's training the employees or the future employees. Right. 
Tayo is matching them up with the employers and ITO is bringing it all together and making sure that it's all done in a, in a really good, respectful way. And everything's done in a mutually beneficial manner. Mm. So we're all benefiting from it. Right. Now, can we just uh, talk a little bit more in case people are interested in wanting to get involved about how they can do so? Absolutely. So one, I, I always encourage people to, you know, find us online, indigenoustourismontario.ca. And there's tons of resources and information on there. And the Three Fires Collaborative Press, like if you're an employee or you're somebody who wants to, you know, get a job in the tourism industry, Mm -hmm. there is, it's complimentary training. Like you sign up, if you will help you find a job, Mm -hmm. we'll help train you at the fundamental level of the standards of today's industry. Mm will connect you. And then you're a part of a larger network and the opportunities are boundless. I'm not trained as a tourism professional. I studied accounting and political science. Mm. And because of indigenous tourism, I've been able to travel around the world and I come from very humble beginnings. So somebody with uh, a very humble background, you know, you could be doing international business, but it starts with getting involved, finding the right people. And ITO, I'd like to say, is one of those groups that's doing good work for the people. It certainly sounds like it, Kevin. And, uh, you know, like you said, if people go to the uh, to the IndigenousTourismOntario.ca website and go to the Three Fires Collaborative Quest and scroll down, you get an overview. You uh, talk about the eligibility, the benefits, the timeline, the wage subsidies uh, for employers, I guess, and employer COVID-19 information and contact information, I guess, if people have further information. Uh, so uh, it, it's all there for people to look at and, uh, and access online. And uh, people can apply online so uh it's 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 right there for people or is there anything else we have missed there uh, kevin about that no i think you've nailed it in the best way honestly we can't do it justice by talking about it yep. people have to go on and explore and read it and take the time if they're very interested they're going to find success there they're going to find great supports there and uh, before we wrap up you know you shared a word a little bit earlier with me and uh you know for all your listeners one of the things i love to do with all kinds of groups is uh, leave them with a little bit more knowledge than uh, they came into it. So you used the word miigwech mm. and uh, I always try to do a little bit of a language primer with some people. So one of the words we always say is miigwech, which simply means thank you. Mm-hmm. And because we don't really have a word for, for goodbye as a definite goodbye mm. uh, in our language, we say a, a simple term is, and it's a common one. There's many ways to say this, but we simply say, see you later. And we say bomapi. Mm-hmm. So with that, I'll say miigwech, bomapi. Right. Uh, likewise to you, chimigwech and bomapi. And uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Kevin. I thank you for your time. I also uh, congratulate you on the great success you've had. Uh, I see that your name has come up quite a bit all over the internet on <laughs> many fronts. So congratulations to you uh, in all the efforts that you've uh, made over the over the time, especially uh, you know through this effort of tourism and getting the word out there and getting the indigenous voice out there. So, uh, congratulations once again to you. Oh, miigwech, David. Mm-hmm. Have a great day. All right, you too. Take care. Oh, bomapi. Bomapi. Ona. That's the voice of Kevin Eshkogigan. He is the president and CEO of Indigenous Tourism Ontario. We've been speaking to him about Indigenous Tourism Ontario and also the collaborative that you heard us talking about there. And uh, that has to do with Ontario Tourism Industry, the Ontario Tourism Indigenous Tourism Ontario, the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario, and Ontario Tourism Education Corporation. Uh, we've also been talking about, uh, if you go to the Indigenous 
tourismontariowebsite.ca. You'll find out about the Three Fires Collaborative Quest, and that's where you can look to find out about jobs that are coming up in the industry and actually get involved with uh, getting employed within the Tourism Ontario industry. And beyond, as Kevin mentioned, uh, it goes quite beyond not only Indigenous tourism, but uh, into the general world of tourism. And why not explore? Just like Kevin did, he's had the opportunity to travel worldwide. All right, that is this part of the show. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show, I have the co-authors of an article that was in the conversation, and it is entitled, People Who Feel More Connected to the Natural World Are More Likely to Support Reconciliation. I thought that was an interesting title, and I wanted to speak with the people who put this together. And so, I have with me here on the show the co-authors. And I have with me Catherine Starsik, and she's an Associate Professor and Social Justice Laboratory Director at the University of Manitoba, as well as Aaliyah Fontaine, and she is a PhD candidate in the Clinical Psychology Program also at the University of Manitoba. Catherine uh, is also the founding member of the Center for Human Rights Research and a research affiliate of the National Center for the Truth and Reconciliation, as well as the Center for Social Science Research and Policy. She was originally born in Poland. Well, not, yeah, she can't be originally born in born in two different places so she was born in Poland (laughs) and then she uh, came over to Canada when she was seven years old. Aliyah is uh, also the uh, board research in has broad research interests rather and is uh, an intergroup in intergroup relations attitudes uh, towards social issues and indigenous mental wellness so it is a great pleasure to welcome them both to the show today. Welcome. Hi David thank you so much. It's Hi. yeah. Thanks for having me. Oh well, it's our pleasure to have you both here, and thank you so much. Now, your article: people who feel more connected to the natural world are more likely to support reconciliation. Uh, I wanted to to ask you about that, and we'll get into that first. But I want to ask you about this, and that is the article has been out for about a month now, and I'm wondering who would like to field this question about what kind of feedback you've had so far on this. Uh, Catherine, would you like me to? Uh, sure, yeah, I'm happy for you to lead. For sure. Um, so you know, there there has been. Uh, it looks like quite a bit of interest in this uh, in this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like lots of people uh, have been kind of reading the article, um, and there has been, um, you know, some some um, people who've kind of been retweeting it on things like Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also had um, uh, some people from the university who've also been interested in talking with us a little bit more about the about the topic as well mm-hmm. um, from the Manitoban, which is our uh, our university um, um, uh, news um, news site as okay. well. Yep. Great. Um, now, I, I understand from reading the article that this partly came out of discussions you had with uh, a group of people at the university, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and it was around the idea of what does reconciliation mean? 
Um, so maybe it, maybe it would be helpful just to kind of give a little bit of a sense of um, sort of the research um, that we do in our lab more broadly. Okay. Um, so so very broadly in our in our lab, um, we're very interested in um, things like intergroup relations and how people uh, feel and think about um, issues related to social justice, mm. um, particularly issues that um, impact Indigenous peoples. Okay. Um, and, and recently, uh, Catherine has been the lead on a project um, over the last several years um, that has been seeking to, um, you know, better understand what reconciliation means to people in Canada, um, with the hope that we can develop um, a way of measuring and tracking progress uh, toward reconciliation. So, in order to kind of track, um, you know, whether or not we're moving forward when it comes to reconciliation, we have to be able to understand what it actually means. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and reconciliation is such a broad and multifaceted um, construct, right? It means different things to, to different people. Um, so we so we run, you know, a bunch of different studies um, in our lab um, that uh, kind of get at this idea of what reconciliation means uh, to different people. And this one project uh, that focuses on um, sort of the relationship between people's attitudes toward reconciliation and attitudes toward the natural world. Um, it's kind of one of several different studies that we've that we've looked at. Um, so when it comes to uh, you know what reconciliation means, uh, kind of in the early days of of doing this research, um, I know that I kind of first immediately went to reading the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's uh, final report on the Indian residential school system, uh, and that had come out in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and kind of before, uh, you know, reading the TRC's report in its um, entirety, I had kind of been thinking about, you know, reconciliation as involving different elements such as um, truth telling, um, education, um, kind of an awareness of the past, that acknowledgement of harm, um, addressing some of those structural issues uh, that continue to really negatively impact um, Indigenous peoples and, and strengthening relationships. Mm. But after I kind of read through the TRC's final report, um, my thinking started to change um, and expand a little bit. Um, I really realized that, um, you know, Indigenous peoples hold uh, more of a broader view when it uh, comes to what reconciliation must involve. And there was a couple of quotes in there that had really stuck out to me. Um, One was kind of that, um, you know, reconciliation is is never going to occur um, unless we're reconciled with the earth, um, because our relationship with the earth and other living beings is is really important for, for reconciliation. So that's kind of where the uh, the uh, the original idea for this for this project ended up uh, kind of coming out. Hmm. And, and you know, it, it is interesting because we find ourselves in a situation where we almost need to start looking at reconciling with the earth because of the climate uh, crisis we find ourselves in and because of the fossil fuels and all the kind of questions that are coming up around those issues that you know are separate from the uh, the truth and reconciliation and its report but it definitely is tied in there and specifically speaks to uh, if we are going to in some ways survive as as a human species on this planet if we don't uh, start to understand and work together with the planet uh, instead of just this idea of take, take, take. 
so it is a really interesting uh, approach. And, and so you started to expand your thinking around this and looking at that, which of course goes hand in hand with indigenous thinking, of course, with, uh, with the planet and living light on the land and, and living in harmony with Mother Earth. So what did you, where did that thinking take you? Absolutely. So I so I agree with um, with everything that you uh, that you had just said. So when I was kind of reading through uh, the TRC's report and reading about how survivors would talk repeatedly um, about the importance of also reconciling with the earth and and all living beings, um, it it reminded me of some social psychological literature um, that I had come across um, before, just in just in readings that I had done uh, previously. Um, that had also kind of talked a little bit about this idea of how the way that we relate to uh, other living beings, um, as well as the earth, is also related to how we relate to other people. There's some similarities in, in thinking there. Um, so, so, you know, for me, like it's, um, it's always really great and interesting whenever I see, um, you know, real similarities, like striking similarities when it comes to um, you know, everything that Indigenous people say, our uh, elders, our traditional knowledge keepers, um, when that's also shared by like other people within, say, the social psychological um, uh, field as well. Uh, so, it, so it had reminded me of research that I had also, um, similar research that I had also read about before. Mm. Uh, Catherine, if you don't mind me asking, um, Aliyah mentioned that you had started this project some years ago, I guess. Can you tell us a little bit about why and how that came about? Yeah, so uh, it was really this uh, Aliyah's reading of this report, and then we uh, decided that it would be a good choice for a student's honors thesis, this particular project. So we uh, designed the study, and then Leora Strand um, ran the study for her honors thesis. And um, yeah, so that was kind of just a, a side project in a larger program of research, um, and we uh, thought that perhaps... Um, so just to give you a little bit more sense of the research, sure. um, the neat thing about the, the study, um, as I see it, I mean, everybody's got a different perspective on what they think is neat. Um, but basically, you know, what we know is that people are more likely to want to um, help others if they consider those people within their sphere of moral concern. So, you know, maybe you don't think about it explicitly, but most people have some sense of, who's worthy or what's worthy of moral concern, um, which predicts your likelihood of actually doing something about, you know, injustice. Um, and that if you, uh, people who are more connected to nature are more likely to include more things within their uh, sphere of moral concern. So they have this like greater circle of concern. And so the further you get out, if you are concerned about things like the natural world, then uh, normally what's within that sphere are, are people who are unlike you as well. Mm. Um, and so the neat thing about this is that people um, who have like a broader um, sense of what is deserving of moral concern and people who are concerned about rocks, rivers, trees, uh, and other animals um, are more likely to be concerned about other people as well. And perhaps this is unsurprising from some perspectives, but um, 
but certainly it's it's a like in for some people's worldviews it it is more novel um and so we we thought you know perhaps uh what this might mean um well other than people who are connected to the natural world are different in some ways than people who are less connected is that maybe there's something special about the natural world um and our research can't speak to this directly um but certainly in the future it would be interesting to understand whether or not you know being in nature uh, changes how people treat each other and so if you um think about negotiations or reconciliation often these kinds of events happen inside buildings mm-hmm. <laughs> that don't look particularly great mm-hmm. that don't have any real connection to nature frequently mm-hmm. um and perhaps you know some of those things especially when they're really important um could happen in natural spaces and might be more effective there mm-hmm. um our data can't speak to that um but that would be the next logical step Right. So, um, Aliyah, just going back to the question about uh, you started to put this uh, this question out to people. You started to uh, throw that out to a bunch of, of, of different people, asking them this question about their connection, I guess their moral ideas around uh, their connection to the natural world. Yeah, for sure. So maybe I'll just explain a little bit more about what the actual study um, procedure kind of looked like. Please. Uh, just so that there's um, um, listeners just have a little bit of a better sense of what we actually did. Sure. So what we had done is that we had recruited um, some students from uh, the University of Manitoba uh, here on uh, here on Treaty One. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had them all answer uh, a questionnaire, uh, a survey um, that had asked questions related to, uh, you know, how connected they felt to nature Um, So when we're trying to get a sense of, you know, how connected somebody feels to nature, we don't just ask kind of one question. We'll ask a series of different questions. Um, So an example of one um, question that we might ask people is something like, um, I often feel a sense of oneness with the natural world around me. Um, And participants would rate on a scale of um, uh, like one to seven, the extent to which they agree with that statement. Um, so that was kind of how we, you know, we, we get at measuring uh, things like connectedness to nature. Um, you know, we had also measured uh, something that we call uh, animal human continuity. Uh, so that's kind of the extent to which people see uh, humans and other animals as, as similar and equal or, or dissimilar and unequal. So again, uh, when we're putting out this questionnaire or survey uh, to, to all of our participants, they were rating the extent to which they agreed with statements like humans have a soul, but animals do not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it comes to moral expansiveness, um, you know, we, we uh, presented all of our participants with a long list of um, both human and, and non-human entities. Um, so some examples might be... Um, uh, you know, Banff National Park, a bee, chicken, um, a Canadian citizen, uh, various different entities. And we asked people to kind of rate um, where in their moral circle of moral concern they might uh, place that whatever that entity is. So kind of outside of the moral boundaries of moral concern or within their inner circle of, mm. of moral concern. 
Um, and then, and then finally, you know, we ask people their attitudes toward reconciliation, how supportive they are of reconciliation, how positive their attitudes are toward mm. reconciliation. Mm. So they might, um, you know, rate the extent to which they agree with um, a question like, I have a positive attitude toward reconciliation. Mm. And and were you surprised by the findings that you found that that people that have this this connectedness to the natural world are more supportive of or likely to support reconciliation? Um, well, I wasn't uh, surprised by it because this was um, kind of what our uh, our hypotheses were. Mm. Um, this is what we were kind of expecting to to find. Um, so it, it was encouraging to uh, to see that uh, come out in the in the results as as we had expected it to. Did you did you find anything else from doing this in terms of uh, information that you weren't looking for, but that did come out of the the research? Not that I can think of quite off of the off of the top of my head. We did have some um, kind of specific questions that we were looking to to answer, um, and we did end up. Unless Catherine, are you? Is there I do have I do have a story about something that we did sure. that we is not in this article, okay. and that I think merits some. Um, Quick discussion. And so we actually thought to ourselves, well, as a follow-up study, you know what we should do? We should expose people to nature and then we can uh, see whether or not these things change Mm. because that's the like next logical step Mm. so that you could understand if this is, if we can cause these changes. Uh, But, you know, (laughs) we did it like... uh, experimental scientists we brought people into the laboratory we showed them pictures of nature you know <laughs> animals right. uh, or nature scenes or pe- or people and we wanted to understand how this might change people's attitudes hmm. towards hmm. others um and it just didn't work um hmm. and and i think the the moral from that particular um uh, failure of you know an experiment is that seeing pictures on your screen of nature is not the same <laughs> as being in nature. Right. And so there, I, you know, some of uh, the colleagues, our colleagues at the university of Manitoba are actually taking students out onto the land, mm. um, particularly in native studies uh, and teaching, you know, in spaces outside of the university. Right. And so one would expect that, you know, experiences like that, um, that provide people an opportunity to meaningfully connect in nature. And you don't have to go outside the city to do these things. There are in most cities, thankfully, like lots of uh, green spaces across Canada, Um, you know, maybe going out into these kinds of spaces when we're we're teaching about history or, um, you know, difficult topics might be a place where people can approach things with, uh, you know, a greater sense of um, expansiveness. But it, we didn't, you, yeah, so it, there's this brief side note of what didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. But your article does point to something about taking uh, people and, and putting them, or at least saying these kind of things and education don't have to take place within the four walls of, of, of a building. They can and possibly should take place outside in the natural world um, where 
I guess what we're getting at here or what you're getting at here with you're saying is that it has an influence somehow on how our perceptions may or, or, or may be viewed once we are exposed to those things. I think so. And I mean, maybe not consciously, but lots of peace initiatives are uh, based in nature. So there's this group um, that brings Israeli um, and Palestinian kids together called Seeds of Peace Mm. in the U.S. And they go and they spend a summer together, um, you know, outdoors doing things. Mm. Uh, And, you know, uh, they could have just as easily brought them to a campus and spent it inside in buildings. Um, right. But it's a, it's a different kind of space. It's an outdoor space. And, and I do think that when you're outside in nature, that several things happen, you know, people just tend to be happier. Um, and, and maybe that calmness that comes with being in nature and having a greater sense of, you know, you're just one piece of a bigger whole, uh, because often people experience awe when they're in nature and uh, much more so there than in any other kind of context um, that perhaps then they can see how we're all connected Mm. and then therefore needing to, to care for each other more um, than if you're on a zoom call or, (laughs) you know, in some indoor space. Yeah. You know, there seems to be another question here. It keeps pulling at me, and I'm not sure if I can can uh, specifically articulate it well. But it, it's just, on the whole, our, our, we as people predetermined in some ways. I, I, I guess only because throughout this whole conversation, something has been playing over in my head. And it was when I was a kid. Now, I am of indigenous heritage on my uh, on my dad's side. Uh, well, to some degree, you could argue it's on my mom's side as well, because she was Welsh, who are the first people of Great Britain. But I remember a situation when I was young, and it was, I went to climb a tree or something, and, and I pulled on this branch. It wasn't a very big branch, but it ripped the branch off the tree. I felt horrible, hmm. because I I felt like I had... I had damn had hurt the tree, and I never got that sense because I would see other kids playing and they'd rip branches off trees, they'd destroy like you know things, and and it was like nothing. And I just kind of went, "What's with me? What what is that all about?" So, uh, you know, I don't know what the question is there, but I'm I'm wondering if there is a predetermination and why some people feel this connection, whereas other people don't. Where does that come from? Um, can I answer this question very quickly, Aaliyah, sure. and then you can add to it? Because your story uh, really resonates with me because last year a tree died in our front yard mm. and eventually we decided, well, it was black mm. and we were quite sad mm. and we cut it down, um, but then there was a stump left over Yep. and eventually we decided uh, to grind down the stump and we didn't tell our kids that we'd be doing this before uh, the person arrived to grind down the stump. Mm. We didn't think anything of it really, but they were horrified Mm. that that stump was being ground down. Like really, really upset. Mm. Uh, And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. They had 
like a relationship with that tree. Right, right. And that tree stump was like the last bit of it. And they would, you know, play on it, even with the stump. Mm. Uh, and I thought to myself, oh, um, that stump was actually hazard, but they saw it in a very different way. <laughs> Interesting. But Aaliyah, do you want to answer this question? Um, you know, I, I, I suppose also what comes to mind, um, David, as, as I was listening to your story and, and Catherine, yours as well, is... Um, you know, it, it feels like there's a certain, um, you know, we can feel empathy toward other people, but we can also feel, I think, empathy toward the natural world in a way as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I and I wish I could remember where I read this or, or heard this spoken once, but I do know that um, somewhere I've read that um, um, an Indigenous teaching is that, you know, if we can teach people to show care um, and, and love toward something like the most uh, delicate of flowers, mm -hmm. um, they will um, then expand that love and that care toward um, all other people and beings uh, as well. So it's, it's, I, I, I couldn't answer um, where that, uh, that feeling of, of, um, you know, empathy um, and love and care uh, comes from. Um, I'm sure there's many different determinants of it, but uh, I do think that it's something that, um, can also come from uh, kind of teaching people respect for um, uh, for all living beings um, is, is probably one uh, kind of element to it. Mm. David, I can speak to it a little bit more sure. um, as well. So what I would say in addition, Aaliyah, is like that I teach personality. And one of the things that I know about people in general is that, you know, there are all these differences ar around people. We share a lot in common, uh, but some people are uh, more inclined to connect, you know, empath empathetically to other people, to feel, you know, what other people are feeling and also to connect to, you know, plants and animals in the same uh, way. So, that you definitely see that some people are more inclined to do this than others. Mm. Right. And perhaps part of that is, um, you know, the things that, you know, people are taught as they're growing up. Um, so for example, at some point, you know, the kids, you know, either play roughly with a tree or something. And, and uh, we've, we've corrected that because, you know, like, why would, why would you want to do that? Um and so I think sometimes that requires some teaching, mm. uh, but there's also some kids who are very, very concerned uh, mm. about these things. And that's a personality trait. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, uh, you know, Ali and I come from this world of social psychology where we think that the situation really matters. And so, you know, the people that are around you and what you learn in school, um, and, and in society, generally, like from other people, all this really affects how you interact with things, mm. irrespective of what your maybe uh, natural inclinations might be. Right. And so that there's, because of this, there's a lot of opportunity for us to teach kids and adults, uh, you know, about the importance of this kind of broader respect. Mm. Sounds to me like this uh, idea of reconciliation that we are dealing with currently around what does that mean 
that certainly there are some specific things that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has come out with in, in, in its calls to action that we can all take and that uh, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people uh, can work towards uh, as we try to rebuild this country uh, with, uh, with a, a better future. Uh, but it also sounds like there is, uh, on the broader front, um, we need to reconcile, as you guys are pointing out, uh, uh, with the planet in just many general ways that can help better our future and hopefully help us live longer and better uh, on this planet uh, for the future of all generations as we uh, try to come to terms with how we deal with climate crisis and, uh, and many of the other things that we're currently dealing with here on the planet. I want to thank you both for uh, writing the article. It's very been very thought-provoking as we have discussed this. And uh, I want to thank you both for taking the time to join me on the show to talk about it. Thank you so much, David. It's been uh, a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you, David. It's been lovely. Catherine Starzik is an associate professor and social justice laboratory director at the University of Manitoba. And Aaliyah Fontaine is a PhD candidate in the uh, clinical psychology program also at the University of Manitoba. And it's been a pleasure talking to them both about their article that they co-authored in the conversation. All right, that is this part of the show. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth, and we will see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.